Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that woman, that host, Liv. Here today with, as always, a very special conversation episode. Because obviously, they're always special. I fucking love talking to academics and nerds and experts in whatever forms. It's just so fun. We all get to learn so much. And now, we're dipping our toes into <laughs> Egypt. Kind of, sort of, a little bit, at least. Because today's conversation is all about Isis. Isis. In ancient Greece. Yes, today I'm joined with Dr. Lindsay Masaryk, who's just written a book about Isis worship in ancient Greece. 
And while my mind has been entirely blown by this conversation, not only because I absolutely love the intersection between Greek religion and mythology and that of the rest of the wider ancient Mediterranean, how those things overlapped and blended together over time, but also because it turns out Isis worship was pretty intense and cool and fascinating and weird. I know I'm a broken record when it comes to this, but I just fucking love having these conversations, getting to learn all of this stuff, and then I get to share with you. It's the coolest thing to ever happen to this podcast, and that you all love it and just want more of this intensely nerdy, specific, and sometimes supremely academic stuff is such a thrill. And I've got so much more coming. Today's episode is incredibly fascinating, just unbelievably interesting. I mean, Isis, she's Egyptian explicitly. And then what? The Greeks take her over and do something really interesting? The Romans do even? Okay, we'll get into it. But also you'll hear me reference an episode in this one that is devoted to the Hellenistic period, where we'll get more background on that time period that Lindsay's talking about, along with so much more. That episode is coming soon, along with ancient sea monsters and, oh God, so much more. I've been recording so, so many incredible conversations to bring you. Just you wait. But today fucking Isis, the ancient as fuck Egyptian goddess and the time she became a Greek goddess in the most interesting of ways. Conversations, retconning the Olympians, Isis Worship in Ancient Greece with Dr. Lindsay Masarek. Isis, but not Isis, more like I was just sort of, I haven't had a chance to fully read the article you sent me, mm -hmm. but... Is it women who wear Isis's clothing? Basically, just tell me everything, and I'm trying to, you know, remember things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've I've been working on the ways in which the worship of Egyptian deities gets sort of um, brought into the what I call the northern half of the Mediterranean, so the, basically the Greco-Roman world in a lot of ways. Um, the book I wrote is specifically focusing in on Greece under the Roman Empire, and it's really, that was one of those things where um, when I started working on this project, people thought, is that enough? Like, is that important enough? And really, it's one of those things that once you start sort of poking at, you realize just how popular and how widespread this really was. I mean, we have archaeological and epigraphic evidence for the worship of Isis in basically every like mid-sized town in the Roman Empire, more or wow. less, that we've looked at. You know, it's it's everywhere from like Hadrian's Wall in Britain to you know, Afghan modern Afghanistan, it's it's extremely widespread. And it's something that we really haven't, I mean, there is a, a very vibrant field of ISIS studies. I, I shouldn't downplay that. But I think in particular, sort of the the bigger world who that has studied sort of more mainstream Roman culture, you really don't see a discussion of of this religion. And so one of the questions I've I've been sort of interested in is trying to figure out really how does this this religion sort of figure into day-to-day -day life in, in sort of regular Roman cities. That's so interesting. I, I, I'm constantly wanting to learn more about 
the way that, you know, mythological characters or religious, you know, aspects of those people or what have you, like, extend so beyond the Greco-Roman, mm-hmm. like, the, what we what we really understand as their world. And, of course, Egypt mm-hmm. is, like, the big, the big one because so much mm-hmm. of their mythology and their, like, culture did spread in that way. But... I, yeah, it, this was such a perfect timing because I was like, I really want to expand beyond our general understanding mm-hmm. of Greece and Rome. And so Isis, is, I mean, I know she's one of the big ones, but I mean, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, that's so fascinating. So so tell me about like the religion and the way it kind of mm-hmm. worked. I mean, maybe, and I don't even know, in relation to the mythological character, but yeah. also obviously beyond. So in terms of sort of the historical transfer, one of the things that's quite interesting that we see during the Ptolemaic period is um, there's a lot of in- Isis sort of starts subsuming other deities. The Ptolemies, like most Egyptian dynasties before them, used mythology and, and gods for very political purposes. So they personally identified very closely with Isis and they kind of made a, a new consort for her, Serapis. Osiris is pretty problematic from a Greco-Roman perspective because he's dead and a mummy um so they <laughs> he does get worship but he's definitely never as popular as serapis who is just not dead and not a mummy because there's always a, a lot of issues around mummification in, in our greek text in our roman text that's often one of the things that's most often used to sort of like racially segregate like those egyptians are super weird they mummify they find oh. that very upsetting yeah that and the, the animal headed deities those are like the two things that most often come up as like the sort of like really racially othering uh, characteristics that get brought up. Those are such major parts of, of <laughs> Egypt, <laughs> like, or of what we yeah. know of Egypt. Like, you know, me is the, I don't know a ton about Egyptian mythology beyond a lot of animal headed deities and, and mummification. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Cause that's definitely, I mean, in some ways Herodotus's account of Egyptian religion and culture for the fifth century so deeply shapes the popular imagination even today because mm. those are like the imme- things that we immediately jump to mind that like the pyramids I, I at least in my book I think it's so closely tied to uh, this initial impression but um so the, yeah the Ptolemies get very excited about Isis and um and Serapis who's her sort of like very bland um consort he doesn't have a ton of personality and so she, they actually start doing things like taking over sites that had been traditionally assigned to other deities like Hathor. Um, mm. And so really by the end of the Ptolemaic period, it, it's you actually have a whole new religious definition of what Isis is. She's a, she's a deity, it, the term is henotheism. She basically is the main deity and all other gods are just like avatars of her, more or less. Ooh. And so you start seeing in like at the end of the 4th century BCE, beginning of the 3rd century, like this very small wave of Egyptian priests that are moving to Greek port cities and founding this cult. And like, I don't know that if this is the Ptolemies like sending out some sort of like cultural propaganda mission, if this is just part of a bigger, um, you know, it's also a period in which they have stronger control of the Aegean Sea, you know, exactly why they go is not too extremely clear to me, but this sort of marks the beginning of a new type of, of ISIS movement uh, in which, there had always been Egyptians living in Greece and worshiping Isis, like sort of privately among themselves. But now you start to see cult groups that are actually open to a much bigger um, group of people, uh, particularly um, Greek speakers and, and uh, people who are sort of native to Greek cities. And so that's yeah. one aspect of it. And in terms of the mythology, though, uh, this part is actually really exciting to me. I, uh, I spend a lot of time on this in, in my book. They actually start kind of what we would call retconning 
Greek, like Homeric mythology to make <laughs> Isis fit there. Um, so there's a set of hymns that are, we might compare them like the Nicene Creed. They're very much like, this is who Isis is. This is who her family members are. This is what she's done. Um, and so you have examples saying things like Isis is the daughter of Cronus, which would of course make her like Demeter's sister and, you know, one of the, the original Olympian deities. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> this That's is definitely the strategy huge. they've chosen. Wow. What? That's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the retconning of, of things like that in general has always really interested me. I think a lot about, like, Theseus, the way he's sort of, like, mm -hmm. inserted into everything afterwards. Like, once Athens becomes this major power and they're like, okay, turns out Theseus was, like, there the whole time. How convenient. But, yeah, right. but to, to insert somebody like into the Olympians feels like very over bold the top move. in an interesting way. Yeah. <laughs> very bold move. Um, yeah. yeah. And so you get things and now then you also get her sort of, she's now given these, these roles in Greek history that are, are very traditionally bound. So she like invents writing, which is you know, Hermes's deal. And she's invents laws, which is Athena's deal. And she invents um, the proper negotiation of sexual relationships and family relationships wow. and so she's she's like yeah she's extremely powerful obviously uh, for her devotees but she's also just again like taking up space that is very defined in the traditional like greek mythological world uh, and yeah. defined from you know the eighth century bc very i was very gonna old. say yeah like it's like thousand years worth of definition of these people and then to suddenly be like okay so isis did all of this yeah, so that's that's really fascinating to me. Is that that's one of the major strategies they use is to to really make up a whole new mythology for her that is you know very fundamental. And at the same time, they can't make her not Egyptian, right? She can't yeah. be just the daughter of Prometheus because that that like is very fundamental. It's a different goddess if she's not Egyptian. Yeah. Um, so then you get these these really fun little like nuances in the in the, the Greek verbs where she was, you know raised in egypt but she like favors athens and greece and she like live she has these like connections where she's the same as in one i think in, in one she's the that's actually from egypt um at Medina Mahdi, they actually start describing her as the thracians call you this name you know the, the phrygians call you this name the greeks call you this name um, and it's just a, a laundry list of some of the most famous uh, goddesses like hera um and leto um and wow. um Hestia and it's bizarre that that's again the way they've gone about it that's really interesting the only connection I've ever really known of but like I stick and I'm trying to expand but, mm -hmm. but historically I stick very much in like archaic and classical but you know there's a there's often there's a story you know of her being kind of related to or the same as Io right mm -hmm. like Io comes and wanders around and then she lands in Egypt and she becomes Isis and she like founds the Egyptian people and then they go on to found the archives and there's the connection kind of thing. Right. So does does that get used or is it sort of like making her way more important even than Io? It's interesting because the Greeks don't seem to care very much about Io. There's not really a ton of discussion about her in the sort of the cult practice itself. Yeah. But then when you go to Pompeii, there's actually a really large cycle of paintings inside the, the Temple to Isis there that depicts the myth of Io. And one of the things is we don't have a ton of wall painting outside of Southern Italy, just because the Vesuvian eruption 
preserved so much there. And it's just sort of this weird little bubble that we have there. So we don't know how these, these things were painted. Um, And so there could very, very well have been similar styles of painting. My, my research has revealed there is a certain amount of, um, they look pretty different, but in terms of like architectural plan, but there really is actually quite a lot of consistency in terms of this desire to create sort of this Egyptian landscape inside the temple that hmm. could easily have been affected through wall painting. Interesting. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the things that we don't have is my right. constant, like, <laughs> just, I want to think about it absolutely all yeah. the time. And then what we know of Pompeii and then, or I think of Akrotiria a lot as well, like, because I yeah. focus on older and just like, oh, well, like, what? did the rest look like that or did it not? Is this totally like, you know, its own thing entirely, but it's all we know. That's so interesting. So these sources that, that like, you know, create or make Isis into this major Greek goddess, are they like more literary, more religious? Like what kind, you said they were hymns, right? So what kind of, yeah. Yeah. Like how, how does that work? So they're fascinating. We have, I mean, depending on how you're defining sort of the edges of your corpus, we have somewhere around between like a half dozen to to a dozen. They're all from Greece or Asia Minor and the islands. They don't appear anywhere else. But then it's clear that, so most of them we think were set up in temples and actually read. So Ian Moyer at the University of Michigan has actually proven that they're all punctuated in the same way, which Mm. suggests that they're actually being read as part of sort of like, there's a desire to have consistency across the different sites that are using them. Uh, so it's possible they're read as part of um, a ritual. So that that's pretty exciting um, to find that. Um, yeah. But in terms of, it, it's kind of interesting because they also have a second life. It's very clear that these texts are very easy for people outside the cults to find. Uh, so for example, at the beginning of book 11 of Apuleius's Metamorphoses, the, the whole part where he becomes, a, um, a Isis frees him from his donkey body and then he becomes like an Isis devotee. It actually begins with sort of an adapted version of one of these hymns. It's very, very close. Hmm. Diodorus Siculus has an account of it, of one that he says he saw, you know, in Memphis at this at the Temple of Ptah that's written down there. It's clear that uh, Plutarch knows about them because he also sort of includes lots of them, like aspects of these texts in a weird treatise he writes on Isis and Osiris. Um, so it's clear that actually a lot of people knew about these, even if they weren't actually in the, the cult itself. Right. Oh. It wasn't that secret. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, uh, somehow this happens to me every single time as if it's mm-hmm. brand new, but I just love learning stuff like this so much. Just the, I mean, God, the amount that we're able to know from all of these different little bits and pieces and, and put mm-hmm. them all together in these ways. It's just so incredible and fascinating. I just Yeah. It's really cool. one of the coolest things is always to see like, you know, someone like Ian does work that's very like I mean he's a historian, but he also can do very technical philology, which is very much not what I do. Mm-hmm. But that you know that we can use all these different tools and methods to kind of reveal these things that are then so important to people who are working in other fields. So I, I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, just as somebody who is not in academia, but just has the fortune to get to talk to people all the time, just the different things you learn from the way that different things are studied all over is just, it's constantly mind boggling to me, but it, that sort of is just a very broad statement about what I get to do. And I'm very <laughs> glad that this is my job. Um, I, just generally the way that some of these things have spread uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, from Egypt or from anywhere really, mm-hmm. but do we, do we have any kind of good idea about like what stood out to them about ISIS? Like what it was that made her this special person? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to say because, you know, it, some people in in other contexts, it's clear that ISIS has a very important like funerary afterlife perspective. And certainly in Egypt, that was a big part of what she was offering. That doesn't seem to be what the Greeks are interested in. There's almost no discussion of her in, in context in connection with like death, for example, mm. or afterlife or rebirth, um, which you actually get in some of the other cults like um, like the cults of Dionysus, for example. They don't really seem to be looking to her for that. One of the, I mean, this could be one of the things I'm interested in as a historian is the sort of social aspects of this cult. So what is it that you get sort of from the social aspects of being in this rather closed community? Because it is a a community that isn't just you show up whenever. Um, It does have sort of this this procedure, at least in, in several places of, you know, kind of being initiated and going down the garden path to become closer and closer to the deity. One of the things I think it does offer is this sort of sense of community. Um, it's clear that, as, uh, particularly in the early phases, this community, the, a lot of migrants are joining this this cult, um, mm. particularly uh, Italian merchants who are uh, trading in Greece. Um, we can tell that. And so it's interesting to sort of think about, you know, you have to do certain rituals. It's you have to sort of adhere to certain rules. You have to, you know, potentially come. I mean, ideally, a, a certain number of times uh, and perform, you know, daily attendance to the deity. And so, for particularly those who are really into the cult, you could really gain a lot of identity from that. You could really gain a lot of a sense of self. But of course, one of our bigger questions is, you know, how often do you have to go to really count like? I grew up Catholic, and so you could easily be like a Christmas and Easter Catholic, and you could still be culturally Catholic, but go to Mass maybe twice a year. And is that something similar here? We're not, it's not super clear. But one of the other things that does seem to be appealing to ISIS, to people about ISIS, is she does carry this sort of exoticism with her. And um, cultural appropriation is, of course, not something that people that we would encourage or you know think is a good thing to do but it's popular people enjoy appropriating other cultures they like it it's it's attractive in some sense it gives you this feeling of power and control over things you can't control and so i think that's got to be at least part of it is this sense that you get to kind of have access to the exotic yeah that makes sense yeah like those those people to the south um so what do we know about um, like women involved in the cult? Was it mm-hmm. pretty like, you know, across the board of genders or was it specific to any particular type of person? It's pretty, pretty wide ranging. You definitely have, you know, people who are people who are Greek, people who are, you know, immigrants. You have people who are um, definitely more powerful and wealthy. You have people who are the members of the same family, people who aren't. It's always harder to identify people who are, you know, poor. 
Um, it does seem like at some point people were enslaved to the god, actually. That that happened in some contexts, particularly um, in the area around Delphi. But huh. um, it's pretty wide ranging. And in terms of gender, one of the things that's, this is a kind of disappointing, frankly. You know, when you think of ISIS today, you kind of think of that the neo-pagan thing, right? You think mm. of these like, these very feminist neo-pagan cultures. And that's unfortunately not what we get with, with the cults of ISIS. Um, it's fairly clear that most sites, most, most cult communities wouldn't allow women to be priestesses, wouldn't allow oh. them to have, hold a lot of important roles in the cult. Um, and the times in which they were selected to do those seem to be like the total one-offs, like somebody died and he, here's the filler. So that is a bit disappointing. And there is a sense that Isis, you know, has, she she's a female deity, but she wants you to act in very traditional ways. Um, hmm. So there's not a sense of like liberation here. And we do actually also have like weird little moments, like very early on in the cult, there's a lot of, we have evidence of a lot of cultic rules, which seems to have just been relatively popular to do in the Hellenistic period across all cults. But you have actually some moments where like women are banned from part, at least parts of sanctuaries. Um, women who are menstruating just generally can't go into sanctuaries in Greece, period. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And then like after giving child, after giving birth or um, having an abortion, you can't enter for a certain number of days after that either. So there's a lot of regulation around women's bodies a lot of um, discussion. And it's interesting, too, because actually, if you look at like the Latin poets, the thing that they are always talking about Isis in contact with is that the women can't have sex with them. Their lovers are Isis devotees, and they just they can't have sex. And this is like, oh, of course, a horrible thing. <laughs> that's, that's very Roman. <laughs> very Roman. I, I just recently read a ton of the Ars Amatoria for Valentine's yeah. Day. And that just, that feels very- Interesting choice. Very I know, yeah. <laughs> that was a very, it was a very me choice to be like, this is your romance material is the grossest thing in the world. That's, that's really interesting. It feels very Athena to me, the way, the way you mm -hmm. described her as being- you know, like a woman, but very traditional because mm -hmm. so often the way I feel like Athena is interpreted in the text that we have is like, she's kind of the man's goddess, you know, she's like the hero's yeah. goddess. She's a goddess, but also like she was beloved by men, you know, pretty widely. And I don't know enough about the cults of worship around these people. I'm, I'm more about the mm -hmm. stories, trying to learn more about the beyond the stories but yeah it just feels to me very very athena like kind of taking on mm -hmm. that role of of like yes she's a woman but she's kind of like a token woman to sort of she's a cool woman yeah yeah she's like the <laughs> manic pixie dream girl but like of yeah the ancient world. you know again it's one of those things that i think people i often get that that question um when i'm giving talks and people are like what about women what about feminism and generally the ancient world is not a good place to go if you want to <laughs> no. hear nice things about, about women and feminism. That much I know. Um, I've made it build my career based on that, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I think, one of the things that's kind of fascinating about her is that she she's clearly the, like, the driving force here. Like, Serapis is kind of just here for the ride. He's, mm -hmm. He doesn't have a ton of personality on his own. Um, but Isis, even despite her centrality, um, it's still a cult that's run by by men in a culture where it's not even a question, you know, whether whether the men are in charge or not. Um, and so she becomes 
you know, the, the cult itself kind of reaffirms, I think, broader social norms around gender and power. Mm-hmm. I realize that when you mention her consort again, that she mm-hmm. she's got to be one of the few um, goddesses worshipped in that way who isn't a virgin goddess then. Because mm-hmm. so often it's like if there's a major goddess or certainly one with like a major cult following other than maybe like, you know, Persephone or Demeter, um, like there's they're a virgin, you know, Artemis or mm-hmm. Athena, um, Hestia. So it's interesting that, and I mean, maybe it's not mm-hmm. unique, but it's interesting that way. And then that, just even that saying that reminded me, um, what you were saying about uh, earlier about her, there not being a lot of, you know, death and afterlife things associated with her. Mm-hmm. Do you, and I don't, you know, I don't know why I hedged that, um, but but do you think that's maybe to do with the fact that like the Eleusinian mysteries were already big enough and like there was already such a you know, there was sort of its own world devoted to the afterlife and maybe that mm-hmm. wasn't necessary. I don't know if that's if yeah. really thought about or. It's, it's interesting because it, there are like other places in the empire where the death aspect is a lot more pronounced mm-hmm. um, and people are more interested in it um, for, you know, maybe the Greeks have other options and it is clear that particularly early Christian sources see a connection between Isis and Eleusinian Demeter. I think at the time there actually was a lesser connection than we've previously assumed because it's it's possible that a lot of the mechanisms are based on like how the Eleusinian ministries worked in terms of, you know, what an initiation process is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, And it's definitely clear that she has, uh, she's picking up a lot of Demeter's roles but it doesn't seem like there's, uh, and there is worship of Isis at Eleusis, but it, it's not as tight as I think some people would like it to be, that connection. One of the things I think is kind of interesting, and I think it is, again, maybe a bit historically oriented, is it's clear that one of the things that Isis was most valued for at, in fact, in Ptolemaic Egypt, was her sense of like, reinforcing royalty, the king and queen. Um, and so that's one of the epithets you hear most often, for example, the Demotic text, Isis is the queen. And that aspect, you know, and her, her very close connection to Serapis, I think that might have persisted long after the Greeks stopped necessarily seeing her as a deity that's specifically tied to uh, like a monarchical, a monarchic government system. Is, mm-hmm. is monarchical? I can't remember what word I'm supposed I- to use here. I cannot say I know with any confidence, yeah. but I know what you mean. Yeah. I think they That's, stopped caring yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, they went through such a back and forth over those many hundreds of years and whether or not they liked kings and queens. That's always interesting. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is well-timed as I I talked to somebody just a couple weeks ago about the whole Hellenistic period, which is, again, not Mm -hmm. something that I'm super familiar with, and and how important, you know, kings and queens were then, and I can Mm -hmm. see how isis would sort of grow off of that do we know how and i don't because i I need to learn more about egyptian mythology that's next on my list but um do we know how different she ended up being like other than the death and osiris of it all like from what the egyptians originally you know maybe even like pre tolpanic Mm -hmm. period thought of isis it's it's really hard to draw that distinction just because each dynasty tended to change the mythology right. to suit their needs. So that makes sense. Um, in some sense, whoever was going to end up in charge of Egypt, you know, in the third century, uh, you know, post Alexander, whether it was going to be Ptolemy or whether it was going to be a, an Egyptian or a Libyan or or somebody else, it, they were going to change it. So right, that would that was probably the expectation in some capacity or another. Mm-hmm. Um, inter- one of the questions that some of my colleagues are working on is sort of what does Isis look like in Egypt during the Roman Empire versus mm. how she's received elsewhere. And I think there you're seeing a, a bit more continuity, but it's that's not my particular area of expertise. So I don't I don't want to you know, get out here above my skis. But one of the things I think is is particularly important about that is also recognizing that Egypt itself is going through su- such tremendous changes. Um, during the Hellenistic and Roman period, in terms of you know how the the traditional temple system is organized, um, hmm. traditionally temples have had some level of autonomy um, from the pharaoh, but you know now now they don't have that autonomy because that's just not how Greek kings and Roman kings rule. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a ton of reorganization around ethnic categories, so 
um, the Romans change who counts as an Egyptian, who counts as a Greek, and who counts as a Roman multiple times, and so do the, the Ptolemies. <laughs> yeah, so, and of course, that's tied to your taxes and everything. So it, it, that, of course, would affect to how people are presenting in terms of uh, in terms of racial categories. And that, I think, is is important. And that's, of course, mm-hmm. like a, a really growth, you know, vibrant area of research. Um, and uh, they're also, you know, at the same time, they're receiving information from other cultures as well, new deities, new um, influences, new foods, new clothing. And so... Uh, Egypt, we tend to, I think, think of it as very static because that's what the pharaohs pe- the the wanted us to think of it as very static. Mm-hmm. They didn't want us to think of it as changing. But Egypt does change a lot during this time period. You know, I think that's a, a really cool part of trying to untangle that knot of ISIS in Egypt during the Roman Empire. Yeah, well, and Egypt's just so fascinating because it, I mean, if we want to see any part of it as static, it was like long before the Greeks got there, right? Because mm-hmm. they were just doing so much long before like you know so much earlier than the greeks kind of coming in and and changing things so like you're you know you're dealing with a however many thousands of years old culture that's then suddenly Mm -hmm. dealing with the greeks and then dealing with the romans and i you know i can only imagine how much that would result in change because yeah and it really feeds into the information that i think Greeks had about Egypt, um, what they thought was going on there, because there are there are Greek communities living in Egypt, I think, as early as the 8th century BC, like small pockets of people. Um, and so that's definitely like one key aspect of this as well is, you know, prior to this, he maybe goes, he, he I think he goes, but some people don't think he goes to Egypt and does his tour and writes his whole account of what Egypt is like. He's probably getting a lot of his information from resident Greeks, Greek speakers, as right. well as priests who do speak Greek, so that there's a a, a sense of that that information is being curated for him, and it's already been sort of like filtered through this lens of who he can talk to and like where he can get information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that certainly makes sense. And then so much of what we end up knowing is based on him. And yeah, yeah. it's as much myth as it is history, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I need to read more Herodotus because I mean that I hear sort of phrases like that so often and that's interesting in itself you know right. like a man who kind of presented himself like he was pre- you know presenting history but at the same time like he, you know he didn't see history as we see it now and yeah. let alone that history is subjective anyway and and then yeah to deal with the language barrier of you're going to Egypt but you're talking to Greeks and and then what are they saying and that's yeah. really interesting. I'm I'm now also like simultaneously thinking of what episodes I can create to accompany this <laughs> conversation of like, okay, yeah. how, how can I talk about ISIS or Egypt or what have you? Because there's just so much there. Yeah. I mean, he really is just like making this, I mean, in some ways they, they call it the, scholars call it like this Egyptian mirage. Like he's, mm. he's making this, this, these myths about Egypt and he has these like stories that he's, that are you know coming out. And then he also has like very technical details of like, how big he thinks the Nile is. Where does he think it comes from? They really are freaked out about the fact that the Nile flows uh, south to north. That like is historically a major issue that they cannot deal with. Really? I mean, they cannot hang. That's so funny because that's just different for them because they're used to Greece. Yeah. yeah. Well, most. I mean, to be fair, most rivers do flow towards the equator, and they've been north of the equator this whole time. Right. And now all of a sudden, it's just like. This river's going the other direction. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> it's really long. 
Yeah, and big. I mean, I don't think. Yeah. Well, and I know Greece doesn't have anything like that. So no, it's um, truly a, something yeah. they they flip about about. Like several Roman emperors send ill-fated ex- like expeditions to find the source of the Nile, <laughs> just because they couldn't get over it. Like no couldn't deal. Oh, that's really funny. I love hearing about those, like all the natural phenomena stuff mm-hmm. and how they dealt with it because it's just so, it's so interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, and then how they dealt with it over however long, like, you know, mm-hmm. and people learning more things and changing their weird views on, on how they understood all of that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Now I'm going to read more Herodotus. But <laughs> well, I've, I've done my job then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to like, realized that you'd sent me an article right before we got on this call so I just glanced at it but I was interested in seeing you know what work you've done on like the depictions of it was like women mm-hmm. wearing Isis's clothes right and, and yeah. then how that linked to the religion or mm-hmm. or the worship of her yeah so it seems like costume is a really big part of this religion um we hear I mean her, Apuleius gives us very detailed descriptions of this um, this procession that has you know, people in all sorts of crazy costumes. Hmm. Um, and he pays a lot of attention to the detail there. Uh, and we have wall paintings, again, from the, the region of Pompeii that depict you know, these crazy processions that maybe are thought to be Isaac. Um, and then you also get sort of descriptions in epigraphic texts um, about you know, who's going to pay for what textiles and um you have somebody who's you know a handful of priests called the anubifor so he's someone who's clearly doing something with anubis potentially dressing up as anubis Mm. so it seems like that is a really important part of the cult Um, and this ties into the bigger problem of initiation it's rather difficult obviously to reconstruct what's supposed to be a very secret process Mm -hmm. um tells us you know his version of what he thinks happened a lot of scholars have gone back and forth about how reliable that is. It's a very kind of, there's a lot of, it's probably not super interesting for like anyone who is listening to this podcast to get into. Um, but ultimately it sort of comes down to this question of whether you think all of that book is supposed to be funny or not. Right. So that that becomes one of the bigger questions. I think that the person who probably has the best perspective on is Richard Gordon. He points out that, look, it seems like Apuleius knows a good deal about the cult in general. We don't really have a, a lot of good reasons to doubt him. But at the same time, even if this is like 100% true, he's a he's an initiate himself. He went through it. He can only tell us about what happened at one site at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a sense that this is necessarily the same across, across all of Greece, let alone the entire Mediterranean. So mm-hmm. um, I think that that's a really good point that I, I like to keep in mind. But Supposedly, um, this initiation process involved, um, you know, being specially called to the goddess. Like the goddess had to appear to you and tell you that mm. you were ready to be an initiate. She, um, that you, you know, do some sort of sacred learning through hieroglyphic texts um, that are read to you by the priest. Um, then there seems to be like a three-night initiate specific set of rites that involve. One involves crawling around on the floor looking for the potentially the parts of Osiris. Which is um, tied to yeah. So one of Isis's myths is that um, this is a sort of an origin story uh, that she and Osiris are having like a really nice time, and then Osiris and Seth get into a conflict, and Seth is he plays dirty, he kills Osiris and chops him up into a bunch of pieces and scatters them across the 
the either Egypt or the Mediterranean, depending on you know the version. And so mm. Isis has to go and find them all, um, and then she sews them all back together and you know creates the first mummy, um, and then through magic she manages to um, use his penis to impregnate herself, and that becomes the the way she be- becomes the mother of Horus. Yeah, so Love typical mythology. Yeah, <laughs> typical myth where you're just like, don't worry about that. That's fine. Um, so, so that, that's thought to be some version of that myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another part that I found particularly interesting in which the character's name is Lucius in the novel. He gets dressed up in this very elaborate costume as the God soul. Um, and he stands on a dais and then like stares at, or is either he comes face to face with the goddess, but then also is sort of worshipped as a cult statue himself. Um, mm. So there's a, a couple of like, readings about what that could could potentially be, but it does seem like dressing in the guise of the god and receiving veneration is is part of an initiation rite um, mm. that is practiced in some places. Thessaloniki in Northern Greece seems to be one where we're, we're pretty confident that that one's happening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.
So for me, what you then see sometimes in Athens that also suggests that this might be happening there, there's a, it's, it's actually like the, one of the most common types of uh, funerary portraiture that exists in Athens is women dressed up as Isis. Hmm. So they're dressed up as her. She's got a very particular costume. It's very weird. It's not something that people are just wearing. And so I was particularly interested in, as to why. One of it is obviously trying to, well, at least in my, my view, it seems pretty obvious that they're trying to assert that they are initiates, that they've, they've achieved this very elite status in the cult. But it also seems to be, you know, because these are not aimed just at cult members, actually aimed at the world at large. So it does seem like these are potentially also trying to make a bigger statement in Athenian culture about, you know, who we are and what we do. And it seems like this is a common trope where you'll see men dressed up in very traditional, you know, civic citizen costumes and women will be dressed up in like particularly ethnic costumes or Mm. other others dress. You see this actually quite a lot. Um, And so this is potentially a, a, a method of sort of threading the needle between saying our family is really, you know, we're buying upstanding citizens, but we also like have power in this other realm. That's really interesting. And then it's specific to women, which, you know, mm-hmm. is interesting just based on what you were saying about the cult of ISIS not being yeah. particularly like, you know, not what we would say is feminist. Certainly mm-hmm. nothing really is back then. Yeah. But, yeah. but not being aimed at women. That's interesting that they would be the ones kind of showing that off. It is interesting. There are a handful of um, these that actually depict men in the dress of mm. Isis. Uh, I would describe them as sculptural failures. Um, and to me, that's very fascinating. I love a, I love a sculptural failure. Um, and so it does seem like for a handful of men, they were trying to do that for whatever reason, whether they were, you know, it was a deeply personal thing for them to be an initiate whether they actually chose to dress up as ISIS, um, which of course opens up some really interesting questions about, as as you mentioned here, gender, or, you know, whether we're looking at, you know, something where we just, just like, they, they make mistakes on these statues, these things sometimes, like you'll see, um, there'll be two people and five hands on the, on the (laughs) statue. And you're like, okay, five hands is fine, I guess. So, so whether we're looking at something like that, but I do think that the the fact that there are sort of these kind of ones that I would describe as errors or, or outliers, I do think it does suggest that this is something that um, is otherwise pretty closely tied to the role that women play in their families, which is sort of in many ways actually as a as an expression of status and as a bearer mm. of identities that are important to the family rather than necessarily as depictions in of their own right. Interesting. So it's more so that the women were just sort of there to be shown off. Like, yeah, they got to depict the that the family was involved with ISIS mm-hmm. in whatever way. That's that's interesting. So what do you when you describe when you call them failures? Like, what does that mean? Like sculptural failures? <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Like, are they all like obviously messed up, like five hand style, or like what? Yeah, what what's that? <laughs> Um, so the, the best preserved one is, um, for this guy named, so not so Sibius, sorry, I'm, I'm now I'm totally blanking on this guy's name. This, this best preserved one is actually, it's in the, uh, like a storeroom that belongs to the city of Athens, their civic archive, um, there. And so this guy, he's wearing like, normally men wear a, a pretty traditional garment. They, they'll either be nude underneath or they'll have like a, let's call it a chiton. So it's basically like a, a sleeved tunic. And then they'll have the himatium, which is like a big, 
it's like a big piece of cloth that they wrap in a particular way. So this is clearly some way in which, because Isis is the costume that's most popular, is very particular because it has basically these four corners of a of a of a cloth tied into like a big a big old knot in the middle mm-hmm. of the like right in between the breasts. Um, sometimes it's a little bit it's up here above the heart, but the most popular one is the one that's right over the breasts. Um, and then it creates this like particular set of drapery folds that run down the front. It's very like idiosyncratic. And so for this, they kind of tried to do this thing where they tried to make a version of the Chiton and Himation that would have the four straps, oh. but one of the straps isn't holding anything. So why is it there? And so, it, yeah, it's one of these things where clearly like we were trying to make a, a, a relief that works well with like traditional male clothing, but the actual outfit he's trying to reference is so gendered female that they like can't quite make it work. Gotcha. That's, yeah, I like that. I'm glad I asked. (laughs) That's absolutely like, yeah, it's like we're trying to do the ISIS, but it doesn't actually work because it's got to be a woman's clothes, but then still trying to make that point. And I'm just curious, but like, do we know these guys, you know, were they unmarried? And so they were like, they couldn't just you have a woman show that off? It's bizarre because he has his wife right there. She's okay. she's standing right next to him, just wearing traditional like female clothing for for women. Uh, huh. She's even got like a very up to date hairdo. So for whatever reason, they didn't. Sh- she wasn't going to be depicted wearing the clothing. Yeah. Um, and you know, th- there's anything I would say about that would be like wild speculation. Like maybe she just like really hated the cult of Isis and was like, under no circumstances are you going to put that on me. But you know, she also could have easily been dead and it's mm-hmm. very easy to just do whatever, tell dead people do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's it, again, it's, it's somebody was trying something. They were trying yeah. to do something with that. I don't think it quite worked. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to also just wonder about like how many cases are just an artist making a stupid choice and like mm-hmm. that's all we have and like maybe you know maybe it had nothing to do with the people who were actually depicted and the artist was just like i'm gonna try something and it really failed and then we have to speculate all these different things about what it actually means and maybe it means like absolutely nothing i mean the, this just yeah so many different possibilities of like yeah be an artist being weird <laughs> i mean when you go to the national archaeological museum in athens i think it's it's you know you're upstairs and you see all the stuff and they have you know all this amazing stuff and this is actually kind of true of most museums and then you go to the storeroom and you realize just like how much stuff they have that is not on display. So like whenever I go down there to say these grave reliefs, they have like this whole room that's, I mean, like the size of like a, a basketball stadium, like a basketball court. And it's just stacks of these things. And so like if I go, like I do have to, I have to make an appointment like several weeks in advance because they have to get somebody down there to like get the forklift to move the yeah. other ones so, to get to the one I need. So it's like very clearly a very difficult job. And of course, you don't want to like break the other ones. They're still important, even if I don't need them. Um, and so it, it, it is really, um, it's a lot of work to think about. And you, know, you just think about how many people lived in Athens and died in Athens, and, you know, how huh. many grave reliefs there were, and, you know, how many tombs there were. And, you know, even with that, these things are actually relatively portable compared to some of the other objects that are in Athens so a lot of them got taken there's examples of these actually there's one in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts like somebody just clearly picked this up in Athens and 
19th century and just put it on a boat. Um, it was, it probably wasn't even that hard. I mean, yeah, the story of so much out of museums, right? But that's, I never even think about that, but yeah, what they, I mean, God, that city must just have so much. And that's just what's left over after so many people Mm -hmm. did take things, you know? Um, But I mean, I know they've done so much excavation, like just the stuff that's in the Acropolis Museum versus in the old Acropolis Museum. And I don't know how much of that they like, you know, found more recently, but I have been to both, which is like a big thrill for me that I managed Mm -hmm. to get over there before they changed over. Because I'm like, the difference is so incredible. Yeah, Um, they're totally different types of museums, really. Yeah. Well, and just like the size, they're just so like little. The I mean, the one up Mm -hmm. on the rock, I... I w- was there recently and just looking at that building again, thinking like how little actually fit into that versus yeah. the new one. It's fascinating. I missed the archaeological museum on my last visit though. And now I'm regretting it even more. <laughs> well, I mean, it'll, it'll still be there. And, oh, well. um, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of good statues still, still in there. Oh yeah. No, it's just more me like, longing for Athens kind of at every yes. moment of the day. Um, that's so interesting. And I, um, I was actually talking to somebody recently about, about, you know, grave statues and everything in Athens as well. And the way some of these things are depicted. Um, But it's just so interesting to think of like what stands out to us now. And so Mm -hmm. what gets studied or, or just, yeah, what we have versus what, you know, is still to be found or totally lost or what have you, because exactly like you said, like the number of people that would have died there and the number of, you know, statues that would have been made or just like notations and inscriptions and things. And it's just, anyway, obviously I could go on and on about just like the what if of it all, but I'm fascinated by, by these statuary failures. That's amazing. And then generally just that women kind of served as a sort of an object for depicting family, you know, importance or like priorities or what have you. That's really interesting. And yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's one thing also to keep in mind too, like we don't really know who's really behind funerary monuments. Like Mm -hmm. if you were to go today and say who picks most funerary monuments in cemetery, it would be women because that's Mm -hmm. traditionally like we tend to do that for our families. Um, You know, we tend to handle things like end of life care and funeral planning and things like that. But it it seems like maybe this was maybe more of a gendered male activity um, in in the Roman Empire uh, to design the funerary monuments and make sure that they came out right. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that you wouldn't have necessarily like no say. But it's it's mm-hmm. this is of course one of those really great questions that we will never ever fully be able to answer. Yeah, I mean, like so many questions about the role of women generally because mm-hmm. just things never got written down in in yeah. whatever way that we need. Sorry, now my, my brain is blanking on further questions, but I'd love to hear more if there's more you have to say about um, ISIS worship I generally. I think one of the coolest things about ISIS worship, too, is that the few little paintings we have from the um, from the Pompeii Isaiah, as well as from um, other wall paintings in the area, indicate that it's also just like a really sensory experience. It's meant to kind of overload you. So hmm. we know that they're really into music. They're really into dance. Um, so that we know that they are playing, um, they, like a lot of people would have these little rattles, they're, they're, they're called a sistrum, they're very, they, they come over from Egypt. And so going into an ISIS sanctuary during a rite would have been like a really, I mean, there's color, there's dance, there's music, there's sort of people dressed up in costumes, 
um, it's really performative in a lot of ways. And so I think that that's just like a really interesting and exciting aspect of this cult that can get lost is um, I think it would have been really fun to be an ISIS devotee in a lot of ways. It sounds like it. Yeah. Like a really interesting party. <laughs> I certainly, certainly, definitely. Um, there's a lot, a lot going on there. And just, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people would have really gotten, that might be another reason why a lot of people might have joined. It might've just been like pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and I mean, <laughs> if, if your main mystery cult is like all about death and I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know enough about the Eleusinian mysteries, but they obviously revolve around death. So if it's sort of there's another one that you can join and be a part of where it's more like an exciting party of <laughs> dancing and music and wearing cool costumes and all this, like it sounds like it would be very appealing. Yeah. The way that it, that worship and cultural things expanded across the whole of the Mediterranean is mm-hmm. just perpetually one of the most interesting things which also then just reminded me that you mentioned so that there's there's even evidence of isis worship up by hadrian's wall did you say so mm-hmm. like even that far off in the roman yeah. empire we know that they worshiped her that's really interesting and so it was yeah. like it, similar style that we know of or do we is there minimal knowledge or what i don't know um so in terms of like regional studies mine is sort of the first of a province so i picked mm. greece um there's a lot of people who've looked at it in italy uh, in particular um and so we know a little bit more and it, it's actually quite interesting there's really quite a lot of differences so it does seem like for example people who i i think i make a i hope i make a, a pretty compelling argument for the fact that like people in greece who are isis devotees like it, it is something that they could like have really meaningful identification feelings mm-hmm. towards but it doesn't seem like that's the case for italy and mm. um, it seems like there it is a little bit less um you know oriented around creating a sense of identification for example mm. we don't have evidence of any of these hymns for example in italy oh right yeah you're yeah, yeah. so we don't know if they actually believe the same things about isis as the greek speakers did we don't know like we have like a lot more Egyptian imports, for example. One of the things that's kind of bizarre about the sanctuaries I looked at is that there's very few Egyptian imports, almost none in most sanctuaries. Mm. Whereas in Italy, you have a lot of evidence of, Egypt, of them importing stuff from Egypt. So one of the things I think ha- is happening there is I think in different provinces, this cult is serving different functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in Italy, it might've served a, a more sort of geopolitical function, if that makes sense a way for people to sort of feel like they controlled Egypt and um, to, to imagine that control. Whereas I think in, in Greece, it becomes a little bit more about how to imagine a different form of being Greek that is a bit more cosmopolitan, but it does have to, like, you know, this, uh, this sense of control, um, but it's a different kind of control. It's like a cosmic versus a political control. Interesting. That sounds mm-hmm. nicer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think so. Um, yeah. And then, you you know, when you, when you start getting into other places, like uh, I have some colleagues who work in um, like Romania and, and Serbia and Croatia, and they just have so many Egyptian imports, just like huge quantities hmm. of the stuff, even more than they had in Italy. And uh, it, it's you have then also, you know, you find these um, one of the things that you find all, all the time are these reliefs that depict footprints. Um, and that is something that you see in Egyptian religion as well. You do see depictions of these footprints that are um, often used to depict pilgrims' feet, sort of like people who went on pilgrimages. And then you have them in you know, Spain, 
and you have them in you know in Macedonia in pretty big numbers, and it seems like they're used differently in different regions. Hmm. Um, so it's I think there's actually was quite a bit of, of variability depending on on region and time in how the cults were practiced and what what they were really for. That's wonderful. I mean, and sort of, I mean, obviously, like I'm I'm prefer I prefer Greece overall generally. So it's nice to hear that theirs just sounded like. <laughs> fun and like community-based and identity and and Mm -hmm. I don't know that's that's very interesting I generally this is uh incredibly fascinating I'm just like it's so hard sometimes to take it in and then yeah like I just want to learn (laughs) it's such a weird thing because again it's something that you would never think was as important as it was yeah um, based on like reading just a a, you know a a Greco-Roman culture book a a history book even an archaeology book like you'd never think this was a big deal and it really is yeah well exactly that's the thing i mean i i've been studying greek mythology incredibly in depth for the past five years and like my whole knowledge is the the io story the connection with isis in that way and then so to hear this like huge expansion of her in that region like so far beyond anything io is so fascinating and and i it then means that I have nothing to contribute. I just want to listen. (laughs) Oh, all of my knowledge is completely tapped out. This is amazing. I'm like just learning so much more that I'll then go look into. (laughs) I think too, it it is when you kind of like get past the fact that you're like, okay, so this is very like weird. It, it, It kind of fits into the rules. They make it fit the rules. You know, ISIS behaves in ways that are very, you know, predictable. Compared to like, you know, she's going to act the same way that a Greco-Roman goddess is going to act. Mm-hmm. She's going to actually be depicted in Greco-Roman style. All, all, almost all the actual statues, particularly in Greece, are made of, are just like carved like a Greek statue. And in fact, the one the, the way you tell that a statue is Serapis is like two of the most minor pieces of iconography you could possibly imagine. Serapis mm. is a part in his beard. Oh wow, and that's it. Yeah, his his beard is parted, and then he the other is that he wears a chiton, and his chiton goes all the way to the plinth instead of stopping at the ankle. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so like again, hugely easy to tell him apart from gods like Zeus <laughs> or Poseidon um, or Asclepius. Yeah, like, you 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 wouldn't have an issue doing that, especially if you <laughs> didn't have his head. And um, what about Isis then? Like how? How I mean, I guess this the the clothing that you described is that her mm-hmm. main the main way you tell that it's her. Yeah, so clothing is a, is a really big one. So she has two costumes. The one I described with the knot in the over the chest. That one's pretty mm-hmm. easy to spot because it yeah. even the dress folds are very weird. She's a second one that's called the diplax that looks pretty much the same as a um, a normal sort of woman's costume in this period. So that one's much more difficult. She'll often have a like a floral garland, which is kind of nice. And then in terms of, she's got a very particular hairstyle. She has kind of what we would call sausage locks. Like, like I don't know, my mom was really into curling my hair when I was a little kid. So you, when you, that very 80s style where you would just like do like the Goldilocks curls around the, the big barrel um, curling iron, yeah. very much like that. So that that's sort of her thing. And then she often will have a hole drilled into the top of her head because she has all these crowning implements usually made out of um, metal. And so they would have, you know, just jammed them in up top there. Interesting. So do we have any of those left or they're probably mostly gone and we just have the hole or? 
we have we mostly just have the whole. We have a lot of yeah. bronze statuettes of her. Um, mm. Those are those were popular in the art market, so you find those all over the place. Like the Met has a ton, the the Getty has some, the the Boston MFA has some, um, the Louvre has a bunch, and so there you often see these. It's really quite elaborate headdress that sort of mm. um, includes like the solar disc and the the cobra. Okay. Sometimes she has two the two feathers of Maat. So it incorporates a lot of her very like more traditional Egyptian iconography. That was going to be my question. Yeah. Cause that sounds very, very Egyptian. Mm-hmm. So does that end up meaning that what's left of her in say like marble statues in Greece and things like just tends to look, I mean, like a Greek goddess wearing a funny costume because we don't have any mm-hmm. of the more Egyptian stuff. Yeah. Yes. No, it, and it's, it, I think it's on purpose in Greece in particular. I think they really mm-hmm. are trying to, make a visual version of her that also kind of retcons her, that makes her look like other deities. I think that the, there's a visual strategy as well as a mythological one. And so she really does, particularly the Diplax ones, she looks a lot a lot like pretty much any other deity. She even has a type where she's suckling baby Horus or Harpocrates, as he's more often called in Greece, that does look a lot like the Eleusinian Demeter. That one's more popular in Asia Minor. It's not as popular in mainland Greece, but um, like she's the, the nursing mother that you you do occasionally see that it's pretty close to the Ellicidian Demeter, although Ellicidian Demeter doesn't often um, nurse. That's so interesting. What did you say? Her the Horus is called in Greek. He in Greece he's usually called referred to as Harpocrates, oh. which is sort of it's very similar. Um, he again also comes out of um, Ptolemaic Egypt. He's sort of this child god that young boys are particularly commonly like sort of connected to. Um, so you actually see on a lot of those, those Fayum portraits, the the panel paintings of, of mummies, you often see like these boys with like truly the worst hairdos of all time where there's like, they're like partially shaved and then like have like these two weird like bite marks in the front or like they are all shaved except for like this one rat tail. That's actually an indication that someone has been dedicated to Harpocrates. I uh, really bad haircut. Yeah, <laughs> I can picture a couple of those for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Harpocrates is popular in Greece. He's actually not as popular as Anubis, which is Anubis is bizarre because mm-hmm. I have lots of statues of Harpocrates. I do not have a single statue of Anubis that actually has the head on, which would have been I, a problem for them. Yeah, I was one just going to Vatican. There's actually one in the Vatican. Um, Hadrian had one. It's very ugly. Oh, of course, Hadrian I, I, had one. Yeah. Of course it did. Yeah. It's <laughs> deeply ugly and I, and it makes me really happy because I love a good ugly statue. <laughs> now I've got to see that. Um, that's really interesting, yeah, because that was going to be my next question is like how do they negotiate any kind of involvement with Anubis when like he is so explicitly has the jackal head? Like there is no yeah. other Anubis. Yeah. And the other thing too is he's he's so explicitly tied in um, Greek, the Greek idea with you know, in Egypt, he's so clearly tied to mummification and death. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have much of a personality in um, Greece that we can tell. Um, he's mentioned, most often you'll see a dedication to Isis, Strapis, and Anubis. Um, Harpocrates can be the third, occasionally Osiris or um, other ones, but the two most common are Anubis and Harpocrates. With Anubis, definitely more, more common. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do occasionally see like areas described as like the place for Anubis or the, the shrine to Anubis within a sanctuary. So they are worshiping him. I don't know what they think he is. We do have a part of one of these hymns to Anubis 
but unfortunately it breaks off like pretty shortly after the preamble. So we can tell what it was, um, but we can't actually tell what they thought he was doing. Oh. Um, Disappointing. <laughs> yeah, because it, he's a bit, it, he's an odd one for them to be so excited about. Yeah, Hippocrates yeah. makes a lot more sense because they they make him look like Eros and like it ties into yeah. the whole thing of you know Isis is Venus or Aphrodite and like he makes sense. I get I get why they picked him up. I don't mm-hmm. get what Anubis is for. No, that's really interesting because he is just so iconically only half human, right? Yeah, and in you know, I've never thought about it in that way, but like in obviously in Greek mythology, all of their, or for the most part, their half human mythological characters are like shitty in whatever way, right? Like either the Minotaur or the Centaur, or, you know, like you've got satyrs, but the other than that, and even they're not like revered in any kind of like deep divine way. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned um, the connections with Aphrodite, Venus, and Isis. Does that carry on when they're worshipping Isis in this really explicit way? Yeah, it does. So sometimes you do see dedications to like literally Isis, Aphrodite. So that that is a, a one of her more popular epithets. But there's actually this really interesting thing that also happens where so they'll share the they you know Greek sanctuaries tend to have multiple gods worshipped within them. And Aphrodite tends to appear somewhat often. Um, so one of the, the chapters in my book focuses on Thessaloniki, where we know that there's a you know several statues of Aphrodite, including a really, really gorgeous one of this very sexy Aphrodite type called the, the Louvre Naples type, where she's sort of pulling the drapery over her head. And it's very mm. like see-through and clingy. It's, it's like a very beautiful copy of that type. And so one of the things that's interesting there to me is that you also then have one of these, these hymns in the sanctuary talking about Isis's relationship with Aphrodite. Um, and so to me, that suggests that, you know, part of what you're supposed to do as an Isis devotee is really find Isis in other deities um, mm-hmm. and really sort of e- explore that tension between Isis as the main singular deity and the ways in which she sort of comprises all of the other gods. Um, mm-hmm. And it also might've been a nice way for them to kind of integrate Isis into this very traditional pantheon is to sort of have her be so closely connected to these gods that she sort of also has subsumed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that's the connection I've always understood is sort of like linking them very specifically to an existing God versus when mm-hmm. you blew my mind and said that they just like straight up put her into the, like the origin story. That's so different mm-hmm. from this idea that, cause of course, you know, you have the same thing with like Ishtar and Inanna and their connections with Aphrodite and just the mm-hmm. way that, I mean, and that makes so much sense when you're dealing with such a, a, a large area where they interacted and, you know, worked with within their each other's cultures in whatever ways that they did you know you're mm-hmm. gonna have these connections where it's like oh you've got a goddess of love and sex or what have you and and we've got one too so they must be connected but to then take on isis so much more directly into their pantheon is so interesting and mm-hmm. just had no idea <laughs> it's just <laughs> it is a deep cut in in, in yeah. greek lists it's, it's a very deep cut um to get into the isis uh hymns they're very odd in a lot of ways yeah um they're not they're not something that a lot of people like read in their spare time but, but that's so interesting like I, <laughs> this is what i love about 
<laughs> about all of this is like, is the, those little things that are, that once you learn them seem like a pretty big deal, but maybe it's just because this is my entire existence is like <laughs> taking on this stuff, but it seems like a huge deal. And then the fact that it isn't particularly well known, is just extra wonderful. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And I think one of the other things that I liked most about this is it's a way to think about different groups of Greeks that are all living in, in competition at the same time. Because one of the, mm. one of the, the biggest sort of things that happens when you talk about like Greece under the Roman empire is the first thing that people does come to mind. The thing that people do read is second sophistic literature, which is fascinating and very cool in its own right. Um, it's extremely deeply weird, which I de- I love. It's, and the second sophistic has a very particular view of what, what Greekness is. Um, they're really concerned with that question because it's mostly the authors are mostly very elite Greek men, many of whom are actually also Roman citizens um, who come from like, you know, the traditional families. They're all working in Athens philosophical schools. A lot of them, you know, are philosophers and authors too. And so they're really interested in trying to come up with like, who are we? What is our deal? Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of come up with a very, a very like well-defined answer they come up, they're really excited about fifth century Athens and they love Plato and they love Demosthenes. They love Demosthenes. They love sort of that, that traditional canon of classical Athenian literature. Um, and so they, they write in this way that that's very clear that they're trying to position themselves as the inheritors of that saying that we're, we're able to revive this great, wonderful classical past through our intellectual activity. And that sort of is our really what Greece can bring is this, this pure, unadulterated form of excellence that's direct from this particular social and, and, and historical milieu. And like that's that's a very de- defined version of Greekness. It's very neat, it's very tidy. But also that's 28 dudes who all know each other, <laughs> many of whom are related to each other. They like this, it would basically be like going to Yale and be like, what is America? <laughs> but like you're actually only asking like the full professors at Yale and then like saying this is the answer for all of America in the 21st century. Um, and we weren't even going to th- worry about Canada in this. Well, America never worries about Canada. <laughs> it's true. It's true. They never, never think about Canada. And so for me, that I, one of the things I like most about being able to study this group of ISIS devotees is it's it's another it's another opinion. It yeah. sort of broadens our perspective. This is a group of people that's you know, they're going back to the eighth century. They want to go back to you know Hesiod and Homer, um, and they want to make a version of Greek Greekness um, through Isis that's you know t- actually doesn't have a, a really a timeline, a time boundary, or a, 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 even a geography boundary, because it can contain the Nile, it can contain Egypt, and so it becomes you know there it points out there are other options, there are other opinions about what it means to be Greek in the Roman Empire. Yeah, they're all kind of available. And it's it's interesting because they actually kind of use the same technique that the second sophistic writers do. They just kind of end up with a different set of answers. Hmm. <laughs> Fascinating as everything. Yeah. Uh. The second sophistic writers are very fun. Um, they're very super weird. Um, they Plutarch has these um, minor treatises called the Moralia that like there's one called Greek and Roman questions. And it's just like, why do the Romans do this? And it's some sort of like weird explanation as to why the Romans do the things they do. And then it, it, it's like most of it's about platonic philosophy, but it gets pretty wild. So 
highly recommend if you want to. And then there's Alice Gallius, who's just sort of like, let me tell you weird gossip about all of my friends. <laughs> I mean, ancient writing that is like so accessible in that kind of way of gossipy mm-hmm. or I mean, even I just found it by reading some of the Ars Amatoria where I'm like, oh my God, it's gross in such a modern way. <laughs> like, that alone is so interesting, you know, just the the ways these things are just so universal over so many yeah. thousands of years. And it's, I mean, often in the worst of ways, but it's just still so entertaining all the same. Yeah, they're, they're really, um, it's really fascinating how, how little has changed sometimes. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes in the, the most disturbing of ways, and yet at least we can laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, just before I let you go, is there anything you want to share with my listeners anywhere to follow you or read more or, or anything? You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. My my handle is at uh, effydarling194, which is a, a Maltese Falcon reference. It's not just random words. Um, <laughs> and my book is coming out on Cambridge Cambridge's website um, on the 24th of uh, February. So um, oh, wonderful. get it through your university library um, or, or, or something like that. And I think that's probably it. Wonderful. Sounds yeah. good. I'm going to grab your book so I can research more about this and do a whole episode. <laughs> on it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope I hope you enjoy it. Oh, nerds, as always, thank you so much for listening. Again, I fucking love these conversations. This one was just so fascinating and so unexpected. I mean, I I jumped at it because basically Lindsay told me Isis, ancient Greece, and I said, hell yes, let's talk. But also I wanted to link it up to Women's History Month, which sure, it's coming out the day after, but I'm still counting it. That's why it's coming before the Hellenistic episodes, which are upcoming, which I did record beforehand. That's a little too much peek behind the curtain. But honestly, I just love when I get these unexpected and utterly unbelievably fascinating episodes. Like what a cool job I have. Anyway, thank you all for joining me, for listening, for wanting conversation episodes at all, for engaging with them, all of it. You can find a link to Lindsay's Twitter in the episode's description, along with a link to her book on this topic. Yay, episode descriptions, because they've got all the links you need. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympian and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. So much more. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. You're all the best. This is cool. I am Liv and I love this shit very much. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. 